Today is the fifth day of our spring seven-day session, and it's the 5th of October, 2017. And we left off um, in our text, Impus to Advance in the Zen Gate, uh, where we just came to come to a, a passage uh, by uh, Master Da Hui, and we're going to take a little, just a little bit of a, a detour um, on Master Da Hui's background. Um, I think I mentioned yesterday that he he was a, a Song Dynasty master who really championed koan practice, and um, his his championing of it has has uh, influenced um, Chan, Son in Korea, Zen in Japan, and now Zen in the West. Um, and one of the just the, the interesting things I learned when doing research for the the Pool of Radiance chant, which has uh, women masters in it, we're going to be starting chanting soon, was to discover that Da Wei, who about whom I had known for a long time and, and heard his teachings, um, both he and his master, Yuan Wu, had um, many accomplished female disciples and they both sanctioned some of them as Dharma heirs. Um, but as is the case with many of the women, um, very little information is available Certainly, none really except names when it comes to Yuan Wu. Um, the, these, these women's histories just weren't valued in the same way and, and therefore preserved. Um, but there is some information about some of um, Da Hui's disciples. Um, one source is his own writings, his diaries, and uh, accounts of his, his uh, teaching. And and he was really a strong supporter of women's practice. And his very first Dharma heir was a nun, Miao Dao. And she was, in a, in a sense, a guinea pig uh, for him in the development of his teaching method, um, use of the Hua Do. Uh, she met Da Hui in 1134 when he came to give a guest lecture at uh, the monastery where she was training. She was there for a three-month ango, uh, it's like a 90-day um, uh, extended session that was was a um, common practice in China and, and is still very much part of the practice in Korea today. And uh, she heard him speak and she felt such an, a strong c connection with what with him and what he was saying, that she felt compelled to break her commitment to the three-month anga that she was in and follow Da Hui back to his own uh, uh, training center. But then when she she got there, she was assailed with quite a lot of doubts and, and felt, felt guilty about having left uh, her f former training place and she was a senior nun, nun. She had over 20 years' experience, um, and and it would be have been seen as a um, quite a major thing to leave part way 
uh, through this 90-day retreat, just as we see it's quite a serious thing of when people leave Sishin in an unplanned kind of way. So um, she made a request to Da Hui to um, make an offering as a form of repentance. And the way in which this took form was that she wanted, she asked if she could uh, sponsor a lecture by Da Hui. And this probably involved inviting, inviting people to come to the lecture and providing them with, with uh, a meal uh, along with the lecture. This was a kind of... Um, practice at that time. And this is this comes from, from Da Hui's writings. There's an account of this. She says recently the senior nun Miao Dao came from Mount Shuifeng and asked three times to enter my chamber for instruction. And this asking for something three times is also a, uh, an accept accepted part of, of um, Buddhist tradition that um, and it's a way of testing the, the um, uh, zeal or the, the um, uh, sincerity of a student uh, of refusing requests um, at first and, and to, just to see how whether they will persist so to ask some, for something three times is really to ask for it and um, she she requested um, this, the, this audience you could say um, and he quotes because death follows life and with terrible speed and the samsaric cycle of birth and death is a matter of great urgency. I am not clear about myself, and therefore I wish to beg for instruction. This is really why we practice, because we're not clear about ourselves. We're not clear about what's real and what's not real in us. And it's painful. And it, it, it leads us to do things that we then regret. Often. And maybe, maybe Miao Dao felt, felt settled up in, until her meeting with Dahui, we don't know, but maybe this, this sudden, this sudden um, change coming into her life of suddenly um, getting up and leaving where she was, was probably quite unsettling. And it may have brought it into greater clarity, the fact that she, she um, was not yet clear about herself. Though also this this conviction was probably part of her f feeling uh, a need to follow Dahui. That that he he promised uh, 
a mode of, of inquiry which was compelling for her. Anyhow, Da Hui accepts her request to um, sponsor the Taisho and um, then tells the community um, that it's, it's not a bad thing to acknowledge our wrongdoings and that in fact it's, it's um, a sign of uh, someone's aspiration, their intention. The, the um, writer of this book in which this account appears, her name is um, Grace Shireson and the book is, is Zen Women Beyond Tea Ladies, Iron Maidens and Macho Masters. Um, she comments, We can only imagine Miao Dao's turmoil when she decided to change boats in midstream. A senior and committed practitioner, she left her teacher, broke her commitment to the practice period, and set out to follow this newer, less established teacher, Da Hui. For many meditators, the cacophony of thoughts and feelings that arise in the midst of a meditation retreat can seem overwhelming despite a deep commitment to settle the mind. We are often surprised, surprised having come to a tr the retreat to deepen practice, how the monkey mind tries to assert itself. Miao Dao was suffering guilt and regret, as well as anxious anticipation of her new training. Her teacher acknowledged her suffering and gave her a larger context with, within which to view her angst. He talked about the, the bodhisattva impulse that existed behind the offering of of the teaching, or sponsoring the offering of the teaching, as being um, a, a expression of her Buddhahood. Da Hui offered an important lesson for Miao Dao and for all who enter strenuous training. When we attempt to find the mind of awakening through intensive practice, our doubts and fears may emerge quickly take hold and multiply. We naively believe that we enter a peaceful sanctuary from worldly concerns when we enter retreat. We quickly discover that our internal life appears as a, co a collection of our worst nightmares. This was also the case for the ancestors who preceded us on this path. Da Hui instructed Miao Dao to practice with all of the noise or de demonic obstacles arising in her mind. With, not, not in opposition to. Obstacles are not such a problem, he explained. The important thing is that you have noticed these objects, these obstacles, and are redirecting your mind back to the way. No matter how many times the mind wanders or rears up to disrupt, disrupt meditation, you are to direct the mind back to the object of the meditative focus, whether it is the breath or a koan.
Dahwei said, today, and this would have been probably before the assembly of, of um, the people gathered in the temple, the monastery, Today the senior nun Miao Dao has put forth a thought that she wants to obtain directly the peerless Buddha fruit, Bodhi. As soon as one raises this aspiration, all the wrong acts that one has committed are like dry grasses piled as high as Mount Sumeru, and the aspiration itself is like a mustard-sized spark. They can all be burned up completely without any remainder. It's a beautiful image here for uh, the nature of our aspiration, that whatever our, our um, hindrances, our, our blocks, that this, this bodhicitta can, can be like a spark to, to dry grass and, and, and all this stuff can be burnt away. Grace Charson puts it this way, she says, Aspiration to practice is the complete manifestation of the lifeblood of the Buddhas and all ancestors who have offered their lives to the Dharma. This aspiration is the living, non-dual Buddha that we have been seeking outside of ourselves. It is right here. It is our heart's desire. Aspiration to practice is the complete manifestation of the lifeblood of the Buddhas and all ancestors. And here we can understand this practice in a broad way. Um, not, just, not just as our Zen, but uh, the other parameters. Generosity, living ethically. Practicing patience. Being diligent in, in what we do. And giving, giving rise to, to wisdom mind. In different times in our lives, different parts of these, these uh, different aspects of these six parameters will be more dominant. But, but ultimately they all are interrelated. They support each other. Dahui instructs Miao Dao and all of us not to create separate categories called delusion and awakening. When we, realize, when we release our attachment to these categories, and we stop using the mind to either grasp or to avert, the natural function of the mind arises, lucid and vast. The light that shines forth within this very person at this time illuminates the absolute truth of the interconnected, undifferentiated nature of things. And this is, this is how koan work can, can, can act on us. It can help to bring us to this place where we, we, we drop dichotomies, 
where we, we release our attachment to categories such as awakened or unawakened, good or bad, have and have not. The koan that, that Da Hui assigned to Miao Dao um, is also re recounted in his, in his own uh, uh, journal or diary. And this is what he said about it there. I raised Master Ma Zhu's, it's not mind, it's not Buddha, it's not a thing and instructed her to take a look at it. Moreover, I gave her an explanation. One, you must not take it as a statement of truth. Two, you must not take it as something you do not need to do anything about. Three, do not take it as a flint-struck spark or a lightning flash. Do not try to divine the meaning of it. And then five, do not try to figure it out from the context in which I brought it up. It is not mind, it is not the Buddha, it is not a thing. After all, what is it? So these are this uh, famous statement by Master Matsu. It is not mind, it is not Buddha, it is not a thing. What is it? Then he gives these, these uh, five points, instructions, on how to work with the koan or not work with it. You must not take it as a statement of truth. What does he mean? Well, surely, surely all, this, all these statements by the masters, they're about the truth, aren't they? Well, on, an, on another occasion, Master Matsu said, this very mind is Buddha. And here he is saying, it's not Buddha. It's not mind. So we could, we could take, take this instruction of Master Dahi's pointing to, to our not regarding these statements as, as doctrines that are somehow fixed and true. something rather that, that, that is flowing. Second one, you, do, you must not take it as something you do not need to do anything about. These, these the koans are prompts. They're, they're, they're like a prism through which we can focus our doubts. So they're definitely something to respond to, to engage with. So in that sense it's something that we do do something about. And he says you do not take it as a flint-struck spark or a lightning flash. I'm not quite sure what he means here except these two things um, flint-struck spark and a lightning flash are both very fleeting and even evanescent, ungraspable.
did not try to div divine the meaning of it. I think this this one is pretty obvious. We're, trying, we're not trying to extract something from these statements by Master Matsu. And then do not try to figure it out from the context in which I brought it up. Again, this is like the one before. Can't be, it can't be figured out with our ordinary mind, or ordinary way of um, approaching things. It is not mind, it is not Buddha, it is not a thing. What is it? So Miao Da took this up, this um, this question up, and um, worked on it. At one point um, later on, after she'd been um, working on it for a while, doesn't say how long. Um, da Hui was instructed her, and and he. He recorded what he had told her. Further, I told her that in Sichuan there was a woman, Jishu Daojin, who studied with the old monk, and by the old monk he's talking about his own teacher, Yuan Wu. He instructed her to look at, it is not mind, it is not Buddha, it is not a thing. What is it? This went on for a number of years without an entrance. One day she told the old monk, I have looked at this saying and have not yet an entrance. Do you have another expedient means? So she's saying, she's, she's really asking for another practice, perhaps another koan. She may be, she may be feeling at her wit's end, and so she comes, she comes to her teacher for instruction. The old monk, and this is, this is still Yuan Wu, the old monk said, when I ask you what is it, make a comment. He then picked up a whisk and showed it to her, saying, it is not mind, it is not Buddha, it is not a thing. Leaving off the clause, what is it? She suddenly understood. After a while, she uh, and this is now um, talking about Miao Dao, having having uh, heard this story. So she went away, and then she came back and bowed, and said, "I really do have an entrance." And Dahui says, "You could say I coddled her, like a beloved child." I stopped blocking her path and opened up a path in front of her. I said, it is not mind, it is not Buddha, it is not a thing. How do you understand this? She said, I only understand this way. Before the sound of her words had died out, I said, you added an extra, only understand it this way. 
she suddenly understood. In the several years since I became head seat and took up teaching, she was the first to succeed in investigating Chan. So he, he, she's about to show her understanding and he jumps in and says, only understand it this way. What she had just said, she's saying, that's extra. It's not needed. And that was enough just for everything to drop away and for her to understand. This is the, the, the troublesome thing we, we find is that we're um, always adding something extra and, and taking up a con is really a process of, of, of um, stripping away what is extra or allowing to fall away what is extra might be better to say. Seeing over time, seeing what is superfluous and letting it, letting it drop away, releasing our, our grip. Now, just turning back to our to our um, our text and to Darkway's instructions. Now, <clears throat> he says, <clears throat> "These day there are some self-styled teachers whose own eyes are not illuminated, who just teach people to stop and rest like dead jackals." Other false teachers tell people to follow along with circumstances, keeping their minds under control, to forget feelings and be silently aware. Others teach people not to be concerned with this matter of enlightenment. All these def defective methods of study make you use your effort wrongly and in vain and do not lead to complete comprehension. Just keep your mind in one place and attainment is certain. When the right juncture of time and circumstances arrives, you will naturally bump right into it and awaken with a start. Yes, the, 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 the danger um, with um, with practices with an emphasis on concentration is that one we can slip into a kind of um, 
what they call sometimes a cave of unconcern, where the mind is is um, is calm but not doesn't uh, have insight. This is what I think he's talking about when he talks about just teach people to stop and rest like dead jackals, because it's a, it's a it's an um, it's a misinterpretation of the practice of silent illumination, which is both silent and illuminated, but there can be a falling into just the, the silent side. And Da Hui was a, was, a, was a great critic of this. Um, what he, what he pr promotes here as, as um, the, the way to practice here he says, he says, just keep your mind in one place and attainment is certain. In other words, he's saying, keep your mind on uh, your question, your, your koan, the huado. But he's also saying more than that about the way in which we hold the koan. To, to, to keep the mind still at the same time as attending to whatever is there. Maybe it's helpful to to um, come at this from from an angle. Um, there's a wonderful book called um, "Then There Was Light." Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an autobiography of of Jacques Lucerin, who was a who was a, a, um, at the age of eight. He he had an accident. In which he was was blinded, um, completely blinded. And um, but he led an extraordinary life after after this. Um, as a as a young man, he was was um, a, a member of a, a cell in the French resistance. He was a partisan, and uh, extraordinarily, his job in the cell main job was to vet people who were coming into the cell so he was he was blind but he was considered to be the best judge of character they had in their organization so he'd interview people who wanted to join because of course there was a big danger of uh, being uh, infiltrated and betrayed um, and in fact eventually he made he let one person in who he had some doubts about, but he didn't listen to, and this person did, in fact, betray the cell, and uh, Lucera ended up um, going to Auschwitz. But what he discovered soon after he had been um, blinded as, a, as an eight-year-old boy was that he actually discovered that he could see, and it wasn't anything to do with with... Um, normal vision, but that if he could quiet his mind enough, then um, he could be he could sense where 
large objects were in space, so not small things, but if it was something that was bigger than he was, then he could he found that he had this inner inner vision, what he called um, this other kind of seeing. He said he became aware of a kind of light that was there and that he could um, and that bathed objects. But it took it took him a spe special kind of concentration to sustain this. And, he, and he, he describes it in his book. He says, as I walked along a country road bordered by trees, I could point to each one of the trees on the road, even if they were not spaced at regular intervals. I knew whether the trees were straight and tall, carrying their branches as a body carries its head, or gathered into thickets and partly covering the ground around them. This kind of exercise soon tired me out, I must admit, but it succeeded, and the fatigue did not come from the trees, from their number or shape, but from myself. To see them like this, I had to hold myself in a state so far removed from old habits that I could not keep it up for very long. I had to let the trees come toward me and not allow the slightest inclination to move toward them, the smallest wish to know them, to come between them and me. I could not afford to be curious or impatient or proud of my accomplishment. After all, such a state is only what one commonly calls attention but I can attestify to the, that when carried to this point, it is not easy. Very, very striking how, how similar this is to the kind of attention that we need to pay in practice. A kind of attention that when the, in which there is there's no grasping, no no getting in the way, a kind of a poise or or stillness. But at the, at the same time, something that is vibrantly alive. Just keep your mind in one place, and attainment is certain. When the right dunk juncture of time and circumstances arrives, you will naturally bump right into it and awaken with a start. It's all it all comes down to to receptivity it continues to, this is now dark way again take your own consciousness which is entangled with world, worldly afflictions and move it back into transcendent wisdom if you do this consistently 
then even if you do not penetrate all the way through in this lifetime, you definitely will be n not be dragged off by evil, evil karma at the end of your life. And when he says take your own consciousness and move it back onto transcendent wisdom, uh, really it's just shifting our awareness back to the breath or the koan. That's moving it back to transcendent wisdom. Every time we we um, shift our attention from our uh, random thoughts and our afflictions and back to the breath or the koan, we are transcending ourselves. When you emerge again in a future birth, you are sure to be in the midst of transcendent wisdom and to receive the use of it ready-made. This is something definite beyond a doubt. And we don't have to um, believe in rebirth here. We can just understand it as it will flow. This, this freedom, this transcendence will flow uh, into the rest of our lives. It will have a momentum in us. Just keep your attention focused on the koan all the time. When false thoughts arise, do not try to use mind to stop them. Just contemplate the koan. Keep your attention focused on it when you are walking and keep your attention focused on it when you are sitting. Keep on and on focusing your attention on it. The kernel here, when false thoughts arise, do not try to use the mind to stop them. This is something that, that um, we, we have a hard time learning. If we, if we do try and use the mind to stop false thoughts, then we give them energy. They, they love it, nothing better than, than to have all this aversive energy coming their way. That's food for them. Well, if, we, if we're not trying to stop our false thoughts, then what are we doing? We could well ask. Really, it has to do with just where we put our attention and how we use our attention. It's, it's a shifting a sideways, a kind of deflection, rather than a, uh, a, a direct um, engagement with the, the false thoughts. We recognize them, we acknowledge them as thoughts, and then shift the attention to mu, or what, or physical sensations of the body, or the breath, whatever our practice is. When there is no flavor, no interest, this is a good time. Do not abandon it.
suddenly the mind flower comes to light and shines on all the worlds in the ten directions. Then you will be able to manifest the land of the great jewel king inside a single paw and turn the great dharma wheel while seated within an atom of dust. Many, many of the masters um, talk about this, this, this state we can get to where there is no flavor, no interest. Dahwei says, this is a good time, do not abandon it. When there's no flavor and, and there's no interest, then it's likely to be less attachment. Suddenly the mind flower comes to light and shines on all the worlds in the ten directions. Everything shines with its own light. And we can we can experience this well short of of awakening. Remember one session standing up for prostrations at the end of a chanting service and looking down and seeing the light shining off my toenails. Just in awe at the beauty of that light. It's, it's shining out of everything. But we don't see it. Then you will be able to manifest the land of the jewel king inside a single pore. It's talking here about, about the fact that we live in a holographic universe, that everything is present in every atom. We, are, we each of us are a jewel reflecting all the other jewels in this great net. No need to acquire anything because we have it all. Zhu Hong adds a comment onto the end of this, this teaching by Dark Wei. 
He says Da Hui himself said, with other people concentration is first and afterwards wisdom. With me, wisdom is first and afterwards concentration. This is one of the, the, the kind of characteristics of our school is this emphasis on on um, sudden insight and it's it's really overstating it to say um, first concentration and then wisdom because in fact one has to concentrate the mind to to experience a flash of insight but it's to it, it's to do with emphasis what what where's the emphasis placed in the teaching I, by contrast um, uh, there's a teacher Alan Wallace who's who's adamant that shamatha has to come first and this is uh, uh, deep deep concentration where there's there are literally no no more thoughts in the mind at all mind is completely uh, brought to one-pointedness and he he emphasizes again and again that you can't really have um, insight that sticks unless the mind is completely stabilized and there's there's it's hard to argue with that, um, but the Zen approach is that it can be helpful to have that insight early without that that deep, deep, deep transformative concentration, because then it helps us to keep going on the path that we have a sense of where we're going. You could say. There's a there's an analogy that's made by Master Shenyin when he's talking about about Kensho um, in the in in the Chan tradition. He says, um, by investigating a Huado, one may make a breakthrough and receive perceive directly that self nature is emptiness and that there is no enduring self. This self-nature is also called Buddha-nature. Seeing one's Buddha-nature, however, does not mean one is liberated, nor does it mean that one's practice is completed. Rather, it means that one has gained more faith and confidence in the practice, and that now one clearly knows where the path is. This may be likened to travelling on a dark road on a very dark night. All of a sudden there is a flash of lightning, and for a split second you see the road before you, bright and clear. But seeing the road is not the same as having finished the journey. You still need to travel to the end. In a similar manner, seeing our self-nature, we may have gained a little bit of wisdom, but we still need to practice. We still need to walk the path. But it gives us some perspective. It, it changes our relationship to the practice. There can be a greater, um, greater trust in it and, and, and sense of, of our direction. 
But to just stop at the at the insight would be a big, big, big mistake. Well, our time is up. Up, we'll stop here and recite the four vows. <laughs>